Power is an ancient concept, with formalized attempts at understanding it going back to at least Machiavelli and almost certainly to Sun Tzu. In a more modern context, authors Mesquita and Smith in their 2011 book The Dictator's Handbook explore the factors that drive how politicians gain and retain power with special emphasis on coalition building. Tonight we discuss how realistic this framework is and what lessons can be learned on a local level into the body politic in America as a whole. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick, and I'm joined tonight by Hank, Hans, and Adam. How are you boys doing? Excellent. Doing all right. I am surviving. I retract my excellence. I'm not excellent. That's a bluff. I'm also just fine. Mm-hmm. I'm marginal, you know, I'm marginally fine and okay. Uh, been a shitty year, guys, I gotta say. Been a pretty terrible year. Halfway there. <laughs> I'm trying to imbibe the Nietzschean philosophy that it, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And it's not always true, obviously. I've always wondered, well, what if they chop your leg off? I don't really want to hop around the rest of my life. But um, I do think that anytime something unfortunate happens, um, you got two choices. You can either let it get to you or treat it as an opportunity. And I, I've had a few things happen in the past couple of weeks. And, I, you know, it's frustrating, but you just got to keep moving. But you know what makes it a lot easier is when you got your bros. Hey, the obstacle is the way. Yeah, and that's that's the subject of uh, tonight's shows. Tonight's show: how to uh, form a coalition, so to speak, uh, with your bros. Uh, Nick, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's get into it. So, the idea for the show today: we're going to discuss political science. Um, and I read a book recently. Well, rather, I started reading a book quite a while ago, and then I finally got around to finishing the book. And it is material that Hank's familiar with, so I thought that we would talk. Uh, about it and that is the book the book in particular is dictator's handbook uh the book got me thinking a lot because the, on the one hand there's a lot of very useful material in the book and on the other hand uh there's a absolutely useless and even contradictory material uh, that you know really gives up the ghost so to speak and I wanted to first start out by addressing the question as to whether or not political science is viable. Science, emphasis on science, namely, are there discoverable laws in the field of politics? If so, what are these laws? And one thing I found very compelling about the book is, you know, obviously it takes the affirmative that it, there, it is a viable field and that such laws do exist. 
uh, I previously kind of discounted that. Uh, and I, it did get me to reevaluate a few things. And what I found most interesting is that when you approach it that way, you know, if political science is to be validated, what that means is a lot of liberal myths get stripped away very quickly because it means that there is nothing inherent in the system of, you know, liberal democracy. So let's start with this. Uh, Hank, political science, yes or no? Uh, I view political science as very similar um, kind of metaphysically to biology. Uh, you start by kind of noticing that there are these, there's these weird things out there, but, you know, they kind of, you start being, well, you know, the, these things all kind of seem to have two or four legs. And it's like, maybe that's significant. Then you're like, oh shit, this thing's got six legs. This thing's got eight legs. You start by, uh, you know, kind of looking at the things that you can discern that, well, like... These things all lay eggs, and all these eggs kind of look the same, and they all seem to behave roughly similarly with their eggs, and these mostly have males and females, and a lot of them are kind of the same. And you start to kind of notice these uh, phenomena that stretch across uh, a lot of different uh, categories or examples of things, and you kind of try to formalize those into uh into laws or into metaphysical uh descriptions of um you know kind of law formation processes and of course there's always a lot of exceptions there's always you know some weird vent dwelling bacteria that doesn't use oxygen and lives purely off of thermoclines and doesn't appear to be related to anything else as a silicone based rock dwelling, whatever the fuck. But you know, you can make pretty good at generally generalizations that, you know, if I see some weird thing flying through the sky and I grab it and I look at it for a while, I can basically figure out what it's about. And political science is in my view, kind of a similar thing. Like, there's a lot of fucked up people in the world. There's a lot of uh, historically really weird societies with really weird uh, imperatives. But generally speaking, you can look at some random country and be like, okay, it's a mineral-rich military dictatorship uh, in, like, nowhere in particular. And you can kind of look at their parliament, which they might or might not have in formal terms. You can kind of, you can make analogies and you can see how it's going to break down and you can make some pretty decent predictions about uh, kind of how they're going to be structured and what they're going to uh, do and how they're going to behave. So I like the, the more um, uh, academic textbooky version of uh uh, Bruce Buena de Mesquita's uh, popular stuff is his textbook, The Logic of Political Survival, which is just like replete with uh, physics envy, which I might uh, regale um, some people with uh, further on the show. But uh, I think his attempts to systematize things um, as opposed to narrativizing things is like just absurd and tacky. Like, these are not, you're not taking the fucking partial derivative of coalition strength. 
Like that is a metaphysical con that is a metaphysical concept that is not a quantitative thing that you can take the fucking partial derivative of. Like, give me a break. Well, the rate of change of your popularity might I mean, I'm just joking, but um, yes, the physics envy thing is real, um, but most people who are in political science couldn't do physics anyway, so the math is usually not that hard. Yeah. And it, like, you can do quantitative political science. Like, you, like, we have a lot of really good data sets of uh, election results are always a big one. Like, you know, you take precinct by precinct uh, election results and you correlate that to demography like one of my favorite maps in the world is uh it's an overlay of uh like literally hundreds of millions of years ago the uh, the coastline of uh what is now the uh, North American continent uh it has a shoreline right where the uh the current uh black belt of uh, American, uh, the high share of the Democratic vote um, on a precinct by precinct level, because like hundreds of millions of years ago, there are these little shrimp beasties, from what I understand, that lived near the shoreline, and they all fucking died when the asteroid hit. And they made the soil very rich. Fast forward like several hundreds of millions of years, and this becomes really good for growing cotton. So that's where they put all the black people. When they free the slaves, they become Democratic voters. So, like, you know, this stuff is wild. Like, you can you can actually like draw these these correlations. You can look at uh, features of physical and ethnic geography and make really interesting comparisons. Like, you can still see the uh, the voting patterns between East and West Germany or the parts of Poland that were ruled by uh, literally pre-World War I uh, Germany versus pre-World War I Russia. Like, it's a really clear uh, delineation there. So, well, I mean, is, the, like, the data sets you can do crazy it, stuff with, but making, making that into, like, universal laws of political science uh, is a little bit of a stretch. Well, it's the thing is that it it is not entirely separate, right? I mean, we live in a world governed by laws of causality, you know, and any kind of political activity takes place in that world, right? So it it's you know some people would like to totally divorce politics from from laws, you know, and that you could you know airy fairy will it to be so, right? Everybody's just trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, like, and that's like we're all we're all patriots here, just trying to do what's best for America. Well, and so on the subject of the book specifically, it's at its best when it dispenses with that, and it you know is at its worst when it you know crawls back to daddy, so to speak, right? Because these are academics who operate in the system, you know, university system, and there are certain things that they can't say, even though on the very basic and fundamental level, you know, the theory that they're putting forward, I say they, I forget the other guy's name. It's De Mesquita and uh, who, who's the guy he worked with? Uh, Alistair Smith, Randolph Silverstone, and James Morrow. Okay, so there's a, there's a handful of them. And you would describe them as political realists, right, Hank? 
Uh, basically. So like political realism is usually um, kind of in an international relations context. And these guys, they kind of deal with a little bit of IR, but they mostly deal with uh, domestic politics. But it's it's fundamentally like if you were going to take the realist uh the realist analysis and uh, impute it into uh, domestic affairs. I mean, like, honestly, a lot of the analysis kind of mirrors um, Machiavelli, just like straight up. And uh, a lot of this almost feels like Carl Schmidt in some way. Am yeah, I wrong? And like, all of these of people are that? usually considered like of the kind of broad realist uh, school. Got it. Yeah, so let's go over the basics of it. Um, they're dealing with trying to outline the common incentive structures and what you find is when you you can better understand you know democratic systems or you know the american system when you apply the same principles you would to an autocratic system and that leads to some interesting conclusions and uh some necessary hand waving the further down you go with that so it answers a few questions that, you know, many people would have. I know that in the introduction to the, the popular version of their work, they highlight some town, some shithole town in like SoCal that, uh, you know, the, the various city commissars were making, you know, big money and the immediate income of the town was like, was like $1,500 or something, you know, and it, it, they, they're, theory does a goes a very long way to explain those types of disparities to explain why for example you have uh republican politicians gop politicians who are so at odds with their uh with their base you know it, and the answer the short answer and we can hopefully get into this more is that the their essential backers are actually not their base right so like this I've internalized so much of this and like Bruce Buena de Mesquita is not the only guy that has uh, uh, done this analysis. I think he did a lot of um, kind of quasi popularizing of it. But the idea that like you have a political coalition, I mean, actually, like I've got it open to the I've got it open to the page right now. Um, he, he's got it helpfully uh, delineated here. Political leaders need to hold and this is this is BBDM right now. Political leaders need to hold office in order to accomplish any goal. Every leader answers to some group that retains her in power. It's like, yep, her, right. Her, yep. winning coalition, winning coalition in big caps. This group controls. Yeah, I, I want to, I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, Hank, because you got to, you got to do this without interruption, but I, I would have forgotten to mention that. In in the book, they use the uh, the royal feminine to yeah. describe. Okay, so th this is aggression. I'll I'll start where um, I left off. This should all stay in because this is funny. So uh, everybody who is a, a serious political scientist of uh, any vein has like some government contract. Uh, that's like that's why they do this pandering, like. Bruce Buena de Mesquita had uh, significant contracts through his consulting company with the, uh, I believe, the DOD, either the DOD or the CIA, um, to uh, look at a, a bunch of different problems. Um, I think notably the uh, 
the Iran uh, nuclear program, trying to model the decision-making uh, process of the Iranian regime, which is fine. Like, you know, the government should be paying random interesting people to do political analysis for them. Like, it's it's helpful to bring in outsiders. You avoid some of the internalized groupthink. You avoid some of the incentive structures. But it gets very cringe when he's clearly just pander, literally pandering to clients. It's like, oh, you like golf? I like golf, too. You love, like, fucking women in Afghanistan or whatever? That's definitely what I'm down with, too. So... Anyway, ignoring that, uh, every leader answers to some group that retains them in power, their winning coalition. This group controls the essential features that constitute political power in the system. Then he gets into uh, a uh, a ludicrous distinction between democracy and uh, non-democracies. In democracies, the winning coalition is the group of voters who elect the leader. Wrong! That is not true. That is empirically and theoretically not true. In other systems, it is a set of people who control enough other instruments of power to keep the leader in office. If the leader loses the loyalty of their coalition, a challenger removes and replaces them. They make three related sets of decisions in this model, um, essentially uh, tax rates and policies, uh, spending policies, and uh, providing a mix of public and private goods. That is stuff for y'all and stuff for specifically their backers or themselves. So that's his model in a nutshell. If you're a political leader, you form a coalition, you represent the interests of that coalition, you decide how to rule the country, and if you piss off enough people in your coalition or somebody else makes them a better deal, essentially, uh, they defect from that coalition and you're no longer in power. So, I mean, that that model is true. Like, that model is accurate. That that literally is a, uh, uh, like, literal technical description of how things work in a parliament, for instance. Like, you literally form a governing coalition by assembling different interests that are represented in the parliament. You set policies, and if people leave your governing coalition, your head of state, like, forces the formation of a different coalition. Like, that's... That's like, that is so straightforward as to be obvious. But the same thing actually happens in presidential systems, in like your local town council. You need somebody to vote for you. And those people aggregate themselves into factions that have roughly similar uh, interests. Uh, Those factions have leaders you need to pay off or convince uh, those leaders that they will be paid off in some form or fashion. Like this, it's, uh, again, like I've internalized so much of this stuff that I don't really know how to say it other than it seems very obvious to me. Does it seem obvious to you guys, Hans and Adam? Yeah, it seems fairly obvious. Uh, sorry, staring at something else. That sounded good, though. Yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> like, it's true, but I mean, the implications are interesting because when you... When you say, okay, we're going to form a coalition, that means, by definition, there are people who aren't in the coalition. So, what happens to those guys? 
how much do they get paid off versus like harvesting their organs and selling them to passing by slave traders. Like, you know, that that has implications. And then like what determines what coalition gets formed? Because like he makes all these really stupid contentions that like, well, in a democracy, you're convincing voters as if like voters don't also self-assemble into interest groups that have leaders that can be convinced. It's like a recursive problem all the way down, like literally well, so in the Electoral the notion, College. The notion that it's just democracies that have coalitions is sort of, I think. Uh, That's stupid. That's yeah, absurd. Stupid. No, no, he, he it, generalizes it. Very, yeah, he says like dictators wants. have coalitions, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's that's that's key to the that that's right. that's what makes it interesting. And I, but I think that I think that you know also looking at it in modern terms is difficult. I mean, one of the grandest and most bizarre coalitions that ever assembled um, that's really had a, a large impact on um, you know commercial culture and much of the fate of the Western world, certainly the UK and the United States, would be in. The 18th, early 18th century, the coalition that kind of developed um, all the way through the 19th century of what you could broadly call um, the Democrats and what you could broadly call uh, liberals. And so this phrase, liberal democracy, liberal Democrats, um, really came about in, the, in England. Both of these forces actually disliked each other to a great extent. They had some ideas in common, but... Ultimately, they were, uh, you know, the liberals at the time were very anti-democracy. They really started a political and ideological coalition with these other forces, mostly because they saw them as, I think if I recollect, uh, somewhat weak politically and also um, pliable. And they could be kind of brought in line with the general uh, consensus of a worldwide commercial trading culture for the UK. Yeah. So, you know, I look at, I look at political coalitions. Um, I try and look at stuff like this in much broader or deeper historical terms. And you have to think just as, as a good thought experiment, um, were there political, were there, were there these ideas of political coalitions um potentially in whatever whatever chieftain or tribal circles or tribal elders um, planned the ultimate sort of proto-Indo-European waves of invasion into Europe. Absolutely. Did these, kind, did, did these kinds of societies have coalitions and factions? And so I think that um, you have to try and apply, whenever you're doing these more deep um uh, more introspective uh, analyses of the nature of the political, the, you know, I think very Schmitty and the concept of the political, what is politics at the end of the day? What is a political organization? You have to see if your thought experiment can work, not only in modern terms, but it can work against any single period of time where there was concentrated human activity or maybe even unconcentrated human activity. Um, and I mean, so it, for a lot it of applies this, great I, it, to places yeah. like Rome, like yeah. uh, like, like classical so, Rome. Yeah. And they, they use examples. Uh, their discussion of Caesar is actually pretty interesting. But I have to say, I, I, I'm reminded when I was reading this at one point, I was reminded of uh, 
you know what's the, what's the line from Conan? It's there comes a time when the jewels cease to sparkle, when the gold loses its luster, when the throne room becomes a prison. Well, and it's he he does it. I I recently I I watched uh, we did an episode on um, on what's his name uh, the Korean. Uh, uh, oh, Park Park Soon Park. They're all they're all named Park. Um, so it's I, I mix Park Soon yeah, Park Soon Park Soon Yeah, I, I watched Park. a movie about it uh, recently. It was a dra- uh, dramatic film, but as far as uh, political films go, it was very good because it it showed these dynamics at work. Namely, and they 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 hammer the point home in in the dictator's handbook is that a dictator cannot rule alone. You know. And yeah, I mean Franco, for example. The key, the key elements, uh, especially in modern times, are always it's always going to come to control of the security services, but also mm-hmm. you know it's going to be whatever is a you know the big the big money power in that given country. Is it is it min- mineral wealth or you know is it access to you know whatever uh, bodies of water, et cetera? And uh, what you see. Is in America, right? You have like they make the contention that democracy good because the coalition is broader. Well, but couldn't a broader coalition also be much worse in the sense that in America, what you have is you have a coalition of the high and the low against the middle, right? You have some permanent vested interests of you know the the uh, the bankers and the defense contractors, etc., as well as you know the lumpen pro all trying to loot the middle and one contention that uh one rather one thing he would be very unable to deal with is if you guys are familiar with hans Hermann hoppe's uh theory on democracy and namely that you know a good government because we're talking about the issue good government a good government can easily come from a, a narrow elite or at least good in the sense that it ends up being better than the alternative because a narrow elite can be operating off of a much longer time horizon and that they will have to personally be dealing with the consequences of bad government. And this isn't like on Turp and Hop. This, this goes all the way back to like Thomas Hobbes. That's like, you need a, you you need a uh, HNIC uh, in order to uh, enforce security that uh, leads to greater productivity. And like, if you take the kind of liberal, the argument for like constitutional monarchy, it's like you need somebody who's ultimately responsible, which can be like literally a monarch or a uh, some other like quasi sovereign, like a president who is clearly like, if things are not good, like this is the specific person that you blame uh, in order to uh, have uh, incentives trickle downhill from that uh, single point of attribution. Well, I think that if you if you critically look at the history of most of the European monarchies, certainly the more sophisticated and powerful ones, um, they all had a incredibly uh, tenuous position in that, um, you know, in modern democracy, what's the worst that really happens to you? Your political career ends. I mean, what what really happened to Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon was dethroned, and he basically went to go live in a vacation home and play golf in Yorba Linda for the rest of his life. Yeah, he was sent to his dacha. Right. 
what because happened... he pissed off the essential backers of right. the regime. So, but what happened to in monarchies when um, the Russian czar would go against the boyars, when the English king on numerous occasions from different families had a major quarrel with the nobles? Um, what happened in France where you had an even more complex dynamic of multiple duchies uh, or even Germany, multiple duchies, principalities, kings, all in this vast conglomeration of networks and coalitions and alliances. Who And you needed to weigh all of this against one another. And I think that the consequent, I think, you know, Hoppe made this, this is very old school ANCAP posting here, but Hoppe made this point that ultimately the consequences of democracy lead to many of the inefficiencies in democracy and that the stakes are very low. The stakes are incredibly low if you if you fuck up, if you make the wrong miscalculation, if you do something egregious, something uh, immoral, something um, that will anger a great number of people and the other elites at the same time, um, you are most likely destined for death and your family's... Your, you know, your family's fortunes are doomed. And so I think that political coalitions definitely formed throughout the history of the European monarchies. And the notion that I think that this very modernist notion, I'm, I'm not ascribing this to any of you guys, but there is this modernist notion that advanced political mechanisms and feedbacks are only applicable past, like, you know, the 18th century and it's just just not true it's just not true at all and i think that honestly the political framework in 15th century germany was probably had probably higher stakes and better outcomes than modern germany does i mean you know angela merkel has devastated the country she's kind of reviled throughout much of it and nothing literally nothing has happened to her well, yeah, this, this, so this this is, this is uh, this is, yeah. <laughs> this is this is not a go ahead, Ankle. Yeah, so your your point about like the stakes and the incentives is uh, apt, and this is not necessarily a feature of uh, dictatorships necessarily versus democracies, because you see small democracies, for instance, having uh, leadership that is extremely invested in the. Uh, the future of their country and the prosperity of their country, like there's well, no. I feel like the term dictator is so loaded now. I mean, it feel it feels like similar to what our discussion on terrorism was. I I honestly think that if if the if the if the England of of the 17th century were around today, it would be branded a dictatorship by the United States. It would be branded an oligarchical dictatorship the same way that Russia is. Yeah. Um, and I, I just feel yeah. like trying yeah. to di- trying to a dictator is a very modern term, and I and I it's, it's so uh, loaded. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's very it's not accurate because it is like so. Right. There's there is like th- this is like mixing in a lot of different things, but having a having an explicit leader is actually like an explicit leader with like paper unlimited like 
there's nothing that prevents him from doing anything. There's something that prevents him from doing everything. Like that that sort of coordination point, uh, you know, it's got pluses and minuses if you're trying to do like none none of these things are really by design, but if you're if you end well, up it, it in did, such a situation. Because a, a dictator has a specific house or a specific palace he lives at. Right. Right, you but know, he's also oftentimes got sons and nephews. So it's like you know, did uh did uh removing Saddam Hussein like magically it's like the uh cannibal mindset like you eat their heart and you assume their power it's like it doesn't quite work like that like they're and still I, I so one like of the there, main there conclusions no, there there well there are no like dic- pure dictatorships in the modern world i really am struggling to think of one uh that North korea well, no, yeah, because they're we, just having a lot of internal contention. I mean, ever since the, the early 90s, there's been contention over literally who gets fed first, the army, the party, or the people. And these are all things that they're very adept at balancing. I mean, for adept is maybe the wrong word. They're very concerned about balancing. Um, I don't. I don't think that North Korea is ultimately like this one, an example of a complete dictatorship because, you know, instead of a narrow aristocrat elite, I guess the narrow aristocrat elite in North Korea are just generals, and uh, and maybe his siblings, uh, or maybe the siblings of the grandchildren of um, Kim Kim Song Il. I, I think that uh, or Kim Il Sung, but I. I don't really think that these this this caricature of the uh, of the dictatorship even exists. And if you look at um, Belarus, which is um, often accused of being a pure dictatorship, Belarus has a very complex political framework. And the only reason that the Lukashenko family uh, continues to hold on to power in Belarus is because they have a good cooperative agreement with other oligarchs in Belarus. The military, well, Russia, Russia, and and an external force. But the idea that like Lukashenko does literally anything he wants is drunk with power, is like a madman. That's how he's framed. But he's probably one of the most calm and stable guys leading a country today, and that's because he has a very high stakes, very complicated political framework. And you could honestly make the same case for a country like Singapore with the Lee family. Right. You know, they have a very, very complex network of interests, including um, a uh, patronage and you know sort of underground patronage networks of ethnic and religious and cult interests going back into the mainland China going to India right. that they have to yeah. they have to weigh all of this every day when they make decisions right this is so let me let me jump in here so this yeah. is this is one of the main conclusions I came to reading the book is that when you're looking at these different political forms it's really not much of that is tapestry or tapestry rather 
when really the the distinguishing quality for trying to understand something, if it's a country, you know, a given state, regime, even uh, your local chamber of commerce, is you just you need to make a qualitative analysis of who are the essential backers here. The selectorate. Yes. And what another lesson that I thought was was pretty on the nose is that the coalition that you need to assume power is not necessarily the same coalition that you need to maintain power, which uh, shows goes a long way to explaining the Trump presidency. Well, it also explains a great deal of activity in corporate America. I mean, increasingly a lot, you know, we're, we're kind of entering something akin to the robber baron age again. And I think that in the Gilded Age in particular, um, if you, you know, a lot of the stories, particularly of two of the most infamous men to come out of the Gilded Age, Carnegie and Morgan, um, both of them certainly operated as, in, in a loaded term sense, dictators of their organizations. And a lot of the people that helped create Carnegie, that Carnegie worked with in the early days, were removed from the organization um, tried to backstab him on multiple times, tried to throw him out of his own company, tried to steal assets from him. Um, you know, the, the idea that, first of all, this kind of ancient Roman political intrigue is limited to political organization, I think, is a, a very stupid fault of modern political thinking. Um, but secondly, uh, you, you know, like, the no, I think you're right. The notion that you need to maintain the same people permanently is also s- silly, and it goes to show that these sort of dictatorships or these more um, centrally focused leadership styles with long with longevity are not bad necessarily, and they actually involve having to think critically about. Who exactly is going to support you, and who do you need to curry support with? Like the notion that um, you know, even by this point, Carnegie was dead. But the notion that the Carnegie Steel and its offshoots, these large steel corporations, in the United States, could operate without having to consult with labor unions first, for example, is is ridiculous. And so they had to make concessions. And yeah, they still controlled the market. They still controlled the organization pretty tightly. But they listen to feedback because if you don't listen to feedback, you will die very quickly. There's no survival mechanism if, you know, there's no feedback mechanism ultimately. And one of the so I, uh, one of the problems that is kind of it's a self-generating problem is the fact that you need a coalition that's just big enough. So is this like Dunbar's number? Like you don't want too many people? Well, Dunbar is a constraint. It's like you can only keep track of like 200-something entities uh, in your uh, your brain, uh, some of which you might not even know personally. Uh, and then you really fuck up your own psyche if you're starting to, you know, model uh, like, I don't know, Kanye as uh, as like an actual individual that's taking up one of those slots. But I digress. Uh the the problem with like majority coalitions is that at some point you all meet to divvy up the loot and everybody not in the coalition like kind of sort of by construction like they're not in the room that's what being in the coalition means 
they might end up getting like a concession prize, but they're not deciding who gets what. So naturally, the people in the room get the lion's share. So if your coalition is too big, i.e. you're too popular and inclusive and serving uh, everyone down to the smallest uh, widow and orphan and white supremacist and whatever, uh, then you're spreading the loot really, really thin. And somebody with a more selective appeal that still encompasses a majority uh, can make a better pitch to that prospective majority coalition. So the fact that you win by being exclusive not so exclusive that you're just appealing to like a tiny tiny fringe without the literal physical ability to assume power or to rule but you know not a uh not an all-encompassing appeal a selective appeal that's something that makes uh governance sort of inherently unstable regardless of whether you're in a quote-unquote dictatorship, because dictators can change their political coalitions too. They can decide that, hey, we're nationalizing all the oil fields. Y'all are just fucked. I hope you've uh, got a uh, you know Swiss bank account to retire on. Uh, or if you're obviously in a democracy, like democracies eject people from their coalitions they split off minor parties major parties split they try to make uh better um better deals for themselves and this is kind of you know the dynamics of that splitting and joining process like you could see multiple ways that this could play out you could see kind of you know the the biggest couple of factions unite you could see the the smallest like infinity factions unite you could see the big one and a bunch of really small fish and uh, the the short answer is like it's complicated and it depends how this actually shakes out uh and you're better off just kind of reasoning through the process uh, for the particular situation. But instead of doing that, our friend uh, Bruce Buena de Mosquita has a lot of really cringe uh, math or like quasi math, like just kind of random algebraic symbols that he uses uh, in order to be, you know, I've got this bookmarked here in my. My is it is it at least a little bit better or not is it the same as like some of peter turchin's stuff or? oh dude it's a lot worse oh it's uh, worse I'm, I'm just gonna like so obviously uh this is this is gonna be shit i hope this is like the chuckle uh the chuckle minute uh for our listenership uh in the initial game form, we restricted L's coalition choice to size W. In the following proposition, we derive sufficient conditions to ensure that even if this restriction were dropped, L never benefits from adding additional members to their coalition. Define W sub A sub V as the best possible offer that a leader can make to a coalition of size W that leaves a budget surplus of A. That is, uh, blah, 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 some algebra. Hence, on the equilibrium path, the challenger's greatest possible offer is V sub W sub zero. Define W sub... It goes on. Uh, there's so I like, see a, a weakness in this, um, <clears throat> namely in when you talk about expanding coalitions. They seem to be conflating 
I think partly due to the democracy bent, but they seem to be conflating, uh, expanding the numerical, you know, the, the actual numbers of people participating with expanding the interest groups or, or represented interests. Yeah, I mean, what he really means is power, like expanding the power of your governing coalition, which is so, like literally the point of that, like that shitty algebra. Like the reason why mathematical notation was invented in the first place was because it was a more concise way of saying like what you were saying with previously kind of hazy language. But this is literally the opposite. This is using a bunch of algebraic symbols to describe something that, like, humans are literally built over millions of years to understand, like, friend, enemy, in-group, out-group, like, friend but inside the tent, friend but outside the tent distinctions. Like, our brains are wired for that. So if you use, like, shitty algebra to talk about, like, well, the coalition, as described by set theory, with the partial derivative of loot division, like your brain is not set up to do that. So simple English descriptions work far, far better. So you yeah, can talk about I, things like you know the power versus number. Like a vast peasant horde obviously isn't a governing coalition if instead you've got like all the people that actually own the land that the peasants are bound to because you're in like feudal France circa 1600 or whatever. I mean, before computers, this sort of modeling was, I guess, helpful for people to understand um, abstract concepts, I guess. And I, I can, I can already hear though, from the way he's constructing his model that he's making assumptions and that's what you do when you make models. And so you mentioned budget surplus and number of people. And as Nick was pointing out, it sounds like the implicit assumption is that the larger the coalition, the greater the, the strength, but it also assumes conf uh, not conformity, but um, similarity of the individuals or, um, yeah, I mean, he accommodates coalitions like that's that's fine. You can have like people because there's always um, uh, one of the phenomena he deals with is like the the idea of swing, uh, swing coalition members that might need disproportionate payoffs. So like in uh, Israeli elections, this is really, uh, you know, you, you kind of have your ideological core that this happens really everywhere. Um, you have your ideological core. It's like 20% of the population is going to vote for you no matter what, because they're just sort of like ideologically or socially or culturally affiliated. But then there's like the bastards that you actually have to pay off. So like the religious parties in Israel do not care who the prime minister is. As far as they're concerned, it's like a borderline apostate state to begin with. All they care about is being in charge of immigration, marriages, like all the stuff that they get to like actually impose a religious law upon. So if you want them in your coalition, you basically have to offer them one or two or three of those slots. And that can be like a pretty big deal because if you're a tiny uh, country, like immigration policy can actually pretty drastically affect uh, how your domestic politics go. I mean, even if you're a pretty big nation, it turns out that immigration can pretty drastically determine how your politics go. Uh, 
Yes, because there's no rule well, in politics that says that the winning coalition can't be foreigners. Right. I mean, like there's, and this is also, he doesn't really deal a lot with the mediation between the formalisms and the underlying coalition. So like in the U.S., the, the Electoral College is a perfect example. So if you get like 100% of California, 100% of New York, 100% of Illinois, etc. for like the biggest, I don't know, like 10 states and 49% of everywhere else, you end up with like 75% of the popular vote and you lose the election because your coalition was extremely geographically uh, concentrated and the electoral college rewards winning by a smidgen over a lot of very uh, distinct places. So like that's a formalism that matters because that actually controls who you try to appeal to electorally that to some extent affects uh, where the Gibbs flow uh, afterwards. Like there's no reason to try to shower uh, to shower resources upon uh, California and New York electorally speaking. Um, there might very well be um, because that's where the people that are the personal power brokers within your coalition live. Um, that's sort of a side effect though. You don't give a shit about like upstate New York or like dudes out in Fresno. You might very well care about like nice things for San Francisco and Manhattan. Well, this, you know, you know, trying to actually in, in the realm of, uh, regional politicking, I guess, this is actually a better complex systems, uh, outcome where if you successfully capture the support of varying regions with, you know, an immense amount, even within them of, of differing interests, um, you know, for example, the way Trump did, or uh, certainly the way that uh, Richard Nixon did and, and others have done, it's ultimately a better, uh, a better way of aggregating your core support and then delivering solutions that benefit the most people in the most, you know, set of areas. This ensures in the context of a political state that you don't wind up uh, over supporting one area and completely neglecting another. So, you know, if, if basically if we look at like the 2016 election, for example, Hillary Clinton won like three, four dozen counties, maybe, maybe 50 counties total out of all, you know, hundreds of counties in the country. Hillary Clinton, you know, barely even won a modicum of the land in the country. Uh, and she certainly didn't have diverse regional interests, you know, with different economic outlooks different uh, social outlooks, um, different you know, religions, ideologies, and, you know, all, everything. Uh, you know, if you actually capture diverse areas uh, as New England, the south of Florida, <laughs> uh, eastern Washington, and Oklahoma, you actually have a platform that is generalized enough, that is compatible enough, at a basic level uh, that appeals to a vast swath of different people. That is, you know, in theory, the way that you should be governing. And, and in that sense, 
you're actually keeping the number of people, the raw number of people in your coalition low, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's probably not that many people in comparatively to all the major metropolitan counties she won, but you are ensuring that you have a very diverse, uh, to use another loaded term, set of coalition partners who are you know well geographically located who have certain strengths that play off one another that contribute to one another's outlook and economy uh you know ultimately that is kind of the way if you were to be a dictator you would run a country you would try very hard to make sure that each of the regions of your country and each of the major interests are uh you know aggregated up into common goals and then you you know try and serve on those goals well, if you I mean, get into it's not always the way it plays out i know it's not always the way it plays out but obviously that's probably the best way to start at least solving a problem i mean that's you know, what you and, do if you're like lee kuan yu and you're just yeah, yeah damn exactly. good dictator that's not so much how you roll if you're uh saddam hussein and it's like the takriti boys are your well you, uh, the you only guys you it, can trust if you think of it like France is a, is a great example, France and Germany are um, great examples of this because they've had such complex state formation uh, and such complex political organization over time. Uh, and much of it was uh, solved, um, I think, much more creatively than in places like Italy or Spain. Um but in France, for example, there, there was this notion that if you, you had to find a way to keep uh, the hardy fishermen, watchmakers, and uh, you know, steel producers of Normandy and Brittany and all these regions up north just as happy as uh, cultural interests and local uh, economic interests, such as like the Occitan in the south. And in order to do that, you'd have to, you know, very creatively allocate resources, very creatively build political realignment between these regions, find common ground, find common culture. Uh, and, you know, if you wanted to be a dictator of France, you would basically just have to do the basics of finding what do, you know, what are the basics you want? Like, okay, Occitan region, you want linguistic recognition and you want more investment in whatever, crumbling bridges, holding waterways together. And if you're Normandy, you want expanded fishing quotas and better protection of your maritime industry. Okay, fine. Like, so we've nailed your big issues and we're going to include you in the coalition. We're going to find common ground between you. And there you have the common political culture of France that's remained uh, relatively stable for several hundred years now uh, without much of a problem. And I think that ultimately, uh, certainly in the United States, this used to be the the way of life where you would try and look at what each region in the country really needs. Um, obviously that's becoming <laughs> kind of a, a bygone notion and we're having, we're having the worst kind of dictatorship and we're having a, a amorphous, um, weird dictatorship that is very, very rigid in the kind of people that are in its coalition 
and very, very um, unpragmatic about how to deal with those who are not in the coalition, which is probably leading to you know civil and political strife, uh, where you have a, a, a large amount of wealth being concentrated, like I said, in you know a half or maybe you know two, three dozen counties in a country with thousands of counties. Raising my hand for a couple minutes to get across some ideas here. Um, I, I'm not a political scientist. I sort of try to be an empiricist in, in general in most things. And I hesitate. What I was trying to say before was I, I hesitate to formalize the model of something that is not really uh, a fixed system like in physics. We're talking about the comparison between political quote unquote science and physical sciences like physics and chemistry where you have very predictable underlying natural phenomenon that are governed by these fixed rules as opposed to humans and the social sciences where there's an incredible amount of complexity in terms of the motivations and decision-making patterns. So whenever I look at something that's complicated, I hesitate to formalize it with this algebra. But if I was going to do that, I would have to start with the, the, the evidence that hopefully would inform what these consistent patterns are. And I would wonder how universal those patterns are going to be after listening to you guys talk about how Singapore versus Germany versus the United States is already incredibly different. So is there even any commonality between these different places? Obviously, people strive to get power, but the, the motivations to get power are probably different depending where you are and the incentives that you use to motivate the members of your coalition to support you are going to differ as well. So what are those common building blocks throughout the world? What is different throughout the world? And is it even worth like going into this modeling stuff? Because it, it is that stuff predictive. Like that's the final test. Like, okay, you've done all that analysis and you write down, all right, I find that the, uh, the, the age and the, the gender and the um, annual income of this guy is actually motivating how he votes or how he supports the this particular faction in the in the, in the in the dictatorship. If you've done that, then you have to then test: is that model going to predict what has happened or what will happen? And if you haven't done that, this is all academic and sort of a waste of time. And I'm wondering if this book was ever put up to a rigorous empirical uh, test, whether it actually its models held up to reality that that would be my you know big question like can you model this and how and does it match reality yeah i mean it's uh, the book i mean i i i think i read the dictator's handbook a long time ago um and they very well might make some empirical predictions but a lot of it is kind of um it, it is very um, spiritually similar to Machiavelli, where it's like, well, if you stop and think for a while, uh, like you might think that dictators want to win wars, but here are some interesting circumstances under which they might want to lose wars. And here are a couple of examples where it looks like uh, they weren't really fighting that hard for uh, internal regime reasons. Uh, isn't that interesting? Uh, and that's that's mostly how it goes. Um, and I think that like it's uh, they're models that are um, 
models is almost too high of a uh, characterization. It's like explanations or like a analysis framework. Like it does seem to hold for um, a lot of these cases where it's like you have countries that are engaged in conflicts that seem to be half-assing it because if you make the army too strong, then you're going to get cooed. Like that happens constantly. Um, you know, so you could make the prediction that like in a given situation, like if you have a really unstable uh, government uh, engaged in a war with a really strong army, uh, that army is not going to get any more resources than it already has. That seems to be like basically borne out, uh, except for when it isn't. And there's few enough case studies because there's only so many countries, there's only so many conflicts. Uh, they all have weird kind of local circumstances that don't claim to be incorporated into the models that, I mean, I think like the, uh, the notion of fundamental laws of political science, uh, is kind of on face, uh, not supportable. Um, but there, there are trends. And if you're familiar with a lot of these things, um, then you can just kind of analogize and more than that, it gives you the vocabulary to talk about, uh, you know, if you go through this uh, this coalition formation perspective, it allows you to uh, actually hash out where specifically your disagreements are with somebody who makes a different prediction as far as like, well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the army is frustrated with their circumstances and they're going to be seeking like a different... Uh, different leadership because there's no hope for improvement here. And it's like, well, I think that they're tied to personally uh, to the leadership because like all of their generals are personally related to him. So they're going to stick with him. But like that becomes the nugget of analysis um, as opposed to um, something a little bit less uh, fine grained, like, oh, is like, who's the army going to support? It's like, well, the army has interest groups too. They've got the generals, they've got the colonels, they've got the, you know, the poor bastard, like actually slugging a rifle around. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that that's a good answer to that question, um, but. Uh, well, let me drill down a little bit just to simplify it. I think you, you answered it generally, um, which is which is a good starting point. I'm curious also what are the regional differences, if any? I mean, you could dissect this anyway. You could dissect yeah. it in terms of the form of governance. You could dissect it by the size of the economy or the size of the country. We're talking about Singapore versus America. I mean, there's obviously completely different environments. But where would you say the model starts to break down when you add this aspect? Like, What are those aspects? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the interesting regional variations language. that gets talked about is uh, things like clan uh, cohesion. Um, or like ethnic group cohesion. So um, it, it's totally possible to have a, a country with like a really, really uh, fractious uh, polity where you've got like uh, Syria is a good example. You've got the Alawites that are like 10% or something of the population. And through a variety of circumstances, they managed to be uh, in charge. And for them, it's like basically a sink or swim type scenario. And like for various reasons, 
a lot of people that might be kind of quote-unquote natural coalition partners just like really hate them so it's it's almost impossible to form like a durable majority coalition in that circumstance or like there's a bunch of african uh countries where like the dominant ethnic group is like 30 or 40 percent of the population and like everybody else is other and it's very fractious so like you don't have a a stable coalition per se because like you're constantly at the brink of strife because literally they don't have enough people inside the tent to stop everybody else from bum rushing the tent but like having bum rushed the tent you're basically in the same situation because now like you're trying to pay off like uh, 61% factions, a lot of whom have directly contradictory interests and just personally don't like each other. So that coalition falls apart. Your 40 percenters resume control, rinse and repeat. So like, I mean, you can still analyze these things through the same framework, but uh, the implication uh, is not like, this is how you form a stable coalition. It's like sometimes you're just fucked. Nick, you had some thoughts on local coalitions. Uh, yeah, well, <clears throat> I would say I would ask uh, Hank what uh, what essential coalitions he would look at uh, or where he would look to define the essential coalitions in a small town. Uh, real estate people and auto dealers. Auto dealers. Like if you in a small town, you're not going to have huge dealerships, though. But yeah, real you know, estate. You I know, you're, you're near local equivalent. Like it's so it's trite, but like it's in a small town. Usually, small towns have like a few major employers or like classes of employers, and uh, you know, like the other thing is that. In a small town, some of this analysis breaks down because you really don't have that much freedom of movement. You've got a lot of fixed expenditures. Like, you're not deciding, like, you know, ha, like, I have just become elected mayor. Now I will, like, act on behalf of the 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 grain farmers to punish the corn farmers and spread the loot it's like no like your your town budget is 95% unchangeable because it's like pensions, roads, fire, police. And is that last 5% really even worth fighting about? So you're you're kind of um you're running on a basis of like who personally uh you can work with to solve problems that can be solved with like things like phone calls or just paying some attention or changing some regulation or something, not like these uh, kind of cartoonish disbursements of funds. And in a lot of cases, it's, it's literally not worth the hassle. And so you end up with somebody who just really, really likes being mayor. Uh, it's, 
is kind of correlated to some of the stuff that Nick was talking about, why you end up with these uh, people who just like a, a town council meeting just sounds like a really fun time to them. Uh, it's really fun to like get in a room and like do the whole song and dance about how we're, you know, fighting the system and saving the whales and like advocating for trans black lives and clapping and doing our privilege and whatever. Like that's a fun thing for a certain kind of person to go and do that. And then everybody bum rushes the town council and tries to have their way with them. Uh, for most people it's like, but we literally 95% of the budget is accounted for. You're telling me that like, I have to go and like show up in person and like do a whole song and dance just to stop like sexual deviance from controlling my town library. Like why, why isn't this like baked into the cake already? So it, we're, yeah. Yeah. I mean like it, as you get towards like a local scale, just like everything else, the, the kind of fractal nature and the, the lacuna of uh, like what's, what's possible with the resources available makes a lot of this analysis break down. But I mean, you do need money and support in order to get elected. You do need a day job because a lot of these, uh, a lot of local city council people, especially out in, uh, you know, out in the sticks, uh, it it's not very well paying and you need the freedom in order to be able to run. So you end up with somebody who owns some kind of passive income or some sort of uh, thing that benefits from their association with the government, like they're a lawyer uh, or they have like a, like a, a medical practice, some online business, who knows? I was going to say where I live, uh, which is a relatively small. I was going to add something too. town. Yeah. Please just have your final comments. I mean, I, I'll be pretty quick, but um, the, the people that have time to dedicate to small town issues uh, typically are the most you know vocal, obviously. And the, I mean, it's something that I would not personally uh, and this goes against what maybe what I've said in the past, but I'll, I'll just be honest. Like the time that I spend on whether, you know, the dog catcher, you know, needs to get reelected is, is really not very high. And so I, the, the return is not very high, I should say. And I just don't care about these, these local minor issues. I do care about the people that I know in my local area and my sort of, uh, you know, informal coalition, I should say. But when it comes to the the town ballot box and these types of issues, I might vote here or there, but they don't really get me going as much as as larger scale issues that affect you know broader areas. And so the people that do get worked up about that are typically older or retired, and they just it's their it's their hobby. They have nothing else to do, and they seem to have a lot of influence because they write a ton of letters to the the local newspaper. Um, they know a lot of people and so they can lean on certain types to, to get influence. And we don't have any like huge giant, uh, mega corpse, you know, running, uh, elections here or donating and swing elections. It's really kind of a, do you know these people? Like, do they know you if you're running for office? Are you popular with them? Uh, have you pissed off, you know, too many Karens? These types of little things seem to add up. Um, and if you wanted to influence things, I think you do need to start the process of becoming well-respected within your community and then 
becoming relevant to them. Like, should these people who have all this time care about what you have to say and what you want to do? And will they support you? Um, I suppose you could also focus on the small business people who could donate a small amount. Uh, and they, they do have, I think I would say better organizational capabilities than a lot of these people who are writing letters to the editor. Uh, and they could probably help you organize a good campaign. But aside from that, I don't really know what else, you know, would function in a small location. So I would question uh, what Hank said earlier, that the analysis breaks down when you go on to a small town with a very fixed uh, budget. Because what I would say is, well, doesn't that 5% that, uh, you know, the, the small pittance that can be divided up for loot does not how that loot, small as it may be, get allocated determine the political survival of the, you know the well, local commissars i would say it's it's much less about the loot and it's much more about like who gets for instance uh who gets the ability to get zoning variances and who doesn't who gets uh you know favor who gets the the police to respond uh to their um, their small business really really quickly and who has to who has to right. wait if you know right. if somebody's got an employee but i, I would include political them, favors do they get arrested like that or do they get like you know, their name in the newspaper because they're terribly racist i mean that's these are things that can be kind of divvied up but they're they're um uh kind of small scale informal less and and less able to be quantified because like you can like you have whole um, candidates and their pitch is like good governance like we're gonna make the trains run on time for whatever the the version of that is locally, um, and that's uh, you know rural areas also tend to be a little bit more um, homogeneous in terms of the the interests that are played off against each other. So it ends up being like a personal uh, a level coalition or like semi-personal or like affiliated through some, some group that doesn't even really have uh, group interests per se. They just like cross-affiliating. So it's like, you know, you go and talk to the local uh, Elks Club or like the local... Uh, like sons or daughters of the Confederacy or whatever, depending on what what part of the country you're in, and it's like it's not yeah, like circa circa a year ago that would have worked, but uh, yeah, I mean like yeah. it, it's not like you're going to actually do anything for the VFW, like it, it's you're you're going to like put them in parades and like shake their hands and like do a song and dance, but. There's nothing concrete that you're going to do for them. Probably nothing that anyone else wouldn't have. But you bothered to actually make the effort. And that kind of, um, that's what a lot of people really want out of politics, to be frank. They want to feel like, you know, uh, Mayor McWhatever or like their governor or you know, Donald J. Trump is their personal friend really cares about them even if he can't really do anything about it like he's still on their side and that that makes them like him and that's i think that's really um uh, salient on a 
on a local level where the stakes are very low. And even like sub-local level, you look at corporate politics and this, this sort of thing is rife. Like to some extent, yeah, you have um, things like managers that are able to uh, control uh, like performance reviews and like, you know, if your company has like a bonus pool or like a raise pool or whatever. But like really at a lot of places, it's like, okay, I mean, you have a certain number of projects and maybe you've got one or two really juicy projects or like less terrible projects and they might control that as their kind of prize that they get to disperse. But most of it is like, who's, who's being chill like who who do people enjoy uh hanging out with that they like write down whatever the fuck uh it's uh it's kind of a weird environment again because the stakes are so low that the notion of a political coalition is just like what friends can you choose to affiliate with i i also think that if you're going to become an elected official it helps to have a a background that a lot of people can just hang their hat on whether they're talking to their friends or just justifying to themselves that they're going to vote for you. And obviously this is a democratic, you know, uh, framework. We're not talking about, uh, a, a more, uh, I don't know, violent mechanism of a dictatorship, but you, you want to have a background that looks, um, respectable. And so if you are, um, the fire chief or the volunteer fire chief is probably even better. It shows you're civic minded. You're willing to uh, serve others. That seems very popular where I live and, and people respect that and can see as opposed to hear they've seen your actions. And I think that goes a long way in small towns where those small services do matter a lot because there are not a lot of uh, resources to, to be yeah. shared. And so when you show that, that you're willing to do that, that means something to people. Yeah, you know, something where you have, I mean, the uh, the notion of like a, like winners win in a status sense. Um, it's like almost a you must be this tall to drive type thing. Like people who have social roles that display a certain amount of independence. So like people always build themselves as small business owner uh, when they're running for office. Because that has certain uh, connotations of, uh, you know, independence and uh, ability to run organizations and whatever. Oh, and that you're invested in the same thing as the people who will be, you will be asking for their vote. Right. Uh, or, you know, like just so many freaking lawyers run for office and it's usually like, well, you start, if that's your track, you get appointed to something. And so it's like, like John Anderson, like city treasurer now running for city mayor. It's like, well, I cleaned up the town budget and now I'm going to clean up the town. Like that's usually the, the kind of pitch like you're, you're, you're during your, uh, your Roman uh, course of honors where it's like you're, you're moving from town council to mayor to state senator to governor to president of the United States of America as you uh, you ascend through the ranks, having never actually uh, done anything sort of externally productive uh, since you were in your 20s. It's like many such cases. But that's, I mean, that's uh, the notion of kind of what 
personal characteristics of a candidate allow them to assemble a voting or a non-voting coalition. Like it's not, uh, it wouldn't be the first time that like a general uh, was able to undertake a coup because like their soldiers just really personally liked them a lot. Like he's a, he's a man of the people with respect to his soldier. Oh, he sleeps in the barracks. He eats the same shitty food that we do. Like he wins battles. They don't necessarily expect like, I guess, like I private whatever, uh, am going to get richly rewarded. Like if you're in the Egyptian army or whatever, and there's a coup, it's like, well, shit, I'm still in the freaking Egyptian army. Like, things still suck. I'm still a private in the Egyptian army that's never been like, yes, this is my my golden ticket. Um, but nonetheless, they can be like, well, you know, I trust the general um, because, like, he's our guy. Uh, these are, like, kind of personal uh, characteristics that can, uh, especially when there's a lot of options for coalition formation, um, they can really... Uh, become unusually salient okay so we have we have meandered around a little bit here because i mean i guess that's our nature but let's bring it back and discuss to close out what the key coalitions in america are broadly speaking wall street the blacks the jews <laughs> no, see, the, uh, no, I mean, I, the, I the Jews say... are a diverse. Uh, you you have to account. Okay, so when you talk about like who who affiliates, oh god, with, oh god. Well, no, I'm I'm going somewhere th- with this. So uh, you can have factions that are like part of both coalitions, kind of as like a prerequisite, um, which is to say, like you know, they're, uh, they're sort of baked into the cake already. And it's not like, you know, the, the, the example that Nick just brought up is just one, but it's like, okay, like Lockheed, if you are elected president of the United States of America, Lockheed Martin is going to be your best friend. Like they are going to love you. They are going to support your reelection. They definitely wrote a check to help your election campaign. They also wrote a check for your opponent's election campaign, but, you know, you get a little bit extra second time around because regardless of what you do or what your policy platform is or whichever other bastard is in the room, like by the end of your term, you will have launched several dozen missiles that are like 10 million bucks a piece. Like you just will have. That's that's a empirical fact. That is a uh, enforceable prediction. That, so, that is an empirical fact. I think every president has yeah. launched a few tomahawks. That's why, like Trump, Trump made sure to launch. Like he's like, okay, I'm not going to be doing a lot of bombing, but I'm going to do some bombing, and I'm going to make sure. Yeah, it's a, it's like hitting check the biggest, at the, uh, the most expensive the bomb. <laughs> It's like, right. you know, let's, let's biggest just beautiful. <laughs> oh man, that Mexico but, didn't pay for. Yeah, like I mean, blacks vote like ninety eight percent or whatever for po- particular political faction. I mean, it can be fractal too because if you're in like, I don't know, uh, like 
New York City or something, um, like some some like area with a huge black population, like if you have multiple black candidates, for instance, uh, that coalition ends up being fractal in nature. But like on a national level, it's like, yeah, you know, you can look at them as one singular unit of very concise analysis of like pull, pull the lever for the D. Uh, who, who else we got? We got uh, like the professional uh, college well, educated I, civil servant class. Yeah, I was going to, maybe we can yeah, combine this gang. too. I would say the, what Mobug used to call the cathedral, which is the Ivy League university type uh, and as aspirational type that wants to be amongst the intellectual classes. And you could say the college educated broadly, but Let's be honest. It's the type that wants to work for the think tank. It, it, they they want to work for that NGO. That's a group, and they have a very neoliberal worldview, and they're kind of the the bureaucratic functionaries uh, of the elite. They don't have true power, but they carry out and wield a lot of the power on behalf of the elites, following their talking points, whether it's well, global warming or wearing a mask or supporting BLM or something like that. The bureaucracies at the state and local level as well at the federal level, which are not to be conflated, they're actually sometimes or often uh, in combat with one another, but they are, I would say, some of the primary power centers or factions within the country's political scene. And you can see this again with Trump, to use a more modern example, and Nixon was a great example of this as well. Uh, the bureaucracy definitely has its own goals, its own longevity, its own ideas about how to carry out certain goals or missions. And that's definitely an organization you have to actively uh, either take over, subvert, or work against, or be prepared to be fucked by, because they definitely do have their own internal culture, their own long-term interests, many of which are just financial, but some of which are just ego-driven. And uh, I, I would say that Nothing can be done in this country anymore. Absolutely nothing of any scale can be done without the federal bureaucracy on your side. And to that effect as well, I would say that one of the major interest groups increasingly that's acting together would be uh, you know, large tech companies that are primarily software focused. Uh, and that would be the FANGs as well as some of their lesser uh uh, co-conspirators, Salesforce, LinkedIn being uh, additional uh, actors within that yeah. coalition. They are increasingly asserting themselves uh, in, in large ways. And uh, in, in the same realm of technology-facing companies, I would say the telecommunications and ISPs companies are also very powerful factions well, that uh, they're almost like intelligence service contractors at this yeah, point like the, yeah. the cia and fbi can't officially uh spy on you uh but they'll just or, or censor you but they'll get the tech companies to do it and lo and behold oh wait look at the stuff we found in your computer or uh why were you doing this you know on this date uh and that's all provided them by these surveillance companies yeah, and to yeah. that point, yeah, I mean, I think... the secret police are a increasingly relevant faction. Like you had them directly interfering on both sides, really, of the presidential campaign's uh, last election cycle, um, and uh, most of those people are still gainfully employed. Yeah, I think that um, I've mentioned before that 
though things have changed you know, since 1963, the assassination of John F. Kennedy is one of the most useful moments in American history to understand how the American system works. Because what you had was a situation where just the right minority groups were pissed off to get Kennedy's head blown off in Dealey Plaza. Right? He pissed off the fruit merchants, the security services, the defense contractors, the Zionists, and the mafia, uh, mafia and the casino yeah. owners. Right. And in our episodes on the syndicate, uh, this we did before I had read this book, but it's actually a very useful thing to apply to organized crime and the organized crime state political nexus, which is that uh, broadly understood what would be the syndicate. Well, the syndicate would be a crime coalition, you know, of the upper world and uh, underworld. Well, and it's it's become more opaque. You know, before the show, we were talking about the recent uh, stories regarding EncroChat, which is a uh, premium-based, very uh, complicated, secure chat service um, that was being employed by large networks within the criminal underworld to communicate with one another and to do business. Um, and I think that, you know, in the, the, the golden era of the American criminal, the crime networks were much more obvious. Everyone knew who it was. The trouble was just finding ways to defeat the, the organization without modern, you know, communications technology. And uh, actually finding to, crimes to convict them on and people who were not bought off to, to execute on convicting these people of those crimes. Now, you know, the problem is we don't really know how much of an influence criminal networks or crime syndicates have on the political nature of the United States. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to quantify and see. I will say that probably one of the major political actors within the United States would be uh, the conglomeration, uh, and you know they're not necessarily always working together, but the various assorted uh, Latin American drug cartels uh, are probably one of the most predominant factors within the American Southwest uh, in terms of political orientation and political impact. And, and, and the prevalence extent, of to that, that extent too, in the, the media, entire, the entire private drug industry along with, uh, you know, the major medical uh, conglomerates, hospital chains, the AMA working together with this private drug uh, cartel, not necessarily the, the, Mex the Hispanic drug cartels, but the, uh, you know, the, the Sackler family and, the, you know, Purdue and all, all these companies, um, you know, these uh, hold incredible lobbying power. They're able to touch and impact tens of millions, if not a hundred million Americans very easily through their products, through their messaging, through their propaganda. Um, and that was really what the whole opioid crisis has been about as it's been unfolded was the, the ability for these companies acting collectively with other interests to impact the lives directly or indirectly of over a third of the country. Um, you know, that, that, is, that is incredible power that uh, not even almost any politician could dream to have in modern America. Uh, I would say your average politician is probably one of the, even collectively, that, you know, that, uh, the U.S. House is one of the least effective and able-bodied uh, groups, w factions within the country. It has, like, no interests of its own. 
it's been completely devoured by others with stronger interests, and it's really a more of a battleground than it is a, a, a cohesive political actor at this point. Well, what you see in America is that none of the essential coalition, you know, none of the essential backers of like, any given American regime have interests that align with that of the American people. And I remember there's a part in, in the dictator's handbook where he expresses some kind of puzzlement that uh, the people would have any fondness for the Marcos family because the Marcos family was running, a, you know, they're fielding political candidates, basically. And it's like, well, why would that be? Well, maybe... It doesn't matter that Imelda Marcos had, you know, a you know, multi-million dollar shoe collection because their interests in many ways did align with the interests of the people with respect to, you know, preserving the order on the streets. Yeah, and you could say that about Russia today and probably Belarus and a lot of just very authoritarian countries that if the leadership actually gives a damn about the nation's health and well-being of their people, uh, they're pretty popular. You just don't. But see they don't them. have to give a damn. That that's the point. Like they they, they don't have. They to don't give have a damn. to. Their their interests just need to align. Sure, but how do you how do you really ensure that? I mean, part of giving a damn ensures that. I mean, if you care about the people, you are a little bit responsive in in a sense. Um, versus our current system, where you're basically just bought off by oligarchs, and if you did give a damn, you're identified as such, and then you are actively prevented from getting power. So I don't know, you know, what the optimal solution here is, but it it just seems like it's not a guarantee of getting good leadership in any of these systems. But you do have good examples on on both the dictatorial and the democratic sides, perhaps. Uh, at least in the past, it, it seems like that was the case. But Well, and I think the commonality is that in the cases where you get good results, it's because the essential backers have interests that are aligned with, for lack of a better word, the public good. No, I, of course I agree with you. But what I'm wondering is how do you encourage that? How do you encourage the alignment? That's, I think, the real mystery or challenge of political science is to get that um, yeah, and Dave Mosquito asks the same question, and he provides no real good answer. It's a hard question. Yeah, all of Dave Mosquito's uh, analysis, whenever he starts talking about democracy, just literally turn the page. Like, I mean, when he actually poses the uh, the contrast, which is like in the first 10 pages of the book, and says that in a democracy, your coalition is the uh, your uh, assembly of voters. It's like that's just not true. That's not accurate. That it like nobody who studies like Amer like who do you think like informs people who to vote for? Like, are are we still pretending that we live in? 1955 or whatever where like people are like oh let me let me weigh the arguments here like i really like you know this this nixon fella makes some good points but you know i'm just worried about those missiles so, like no like people people defer to leaders routinely for excellent reasons because they have enough metacognition to know that they're not great at figuring out 
which of these people in, you know, what obscure primary is going to end up shafting them and which isn't. So, like, unions are a thing. They were a thing. They're still a thing. Like, unions provide guidance to their members about which politicians they expect to serve the interests of their members. And that means that the leadership of that union is part of your selectorate, as he puts it, not the membership. And that means that, so like... This brings me to a question, Hank. Um, why do you think it is that on the American right, there have not been more attempts at organizations forming to produce, you know, slate voting in the way that unions do? I mean, political suppression, for one. Um, I mean, it's also forming political coalitions isn't just about uh, who you who you vote for. It's who you get to vote for. So there's a entire like farm team of politicians at every level. Uh, and, you know, Trump being the extremely rare uh, exception of somebody who catapulted it to national uh, prominence without having done the uh, the cursus honorum. Um, it's a hard problem uh, to like develop that infrastructure when there's kind of ready-made faux infrastructure that doesn't necessarily uh, meet the concrete needs of the people in that coalition, but at least like promises to definitely shaft them less hard uh, than the other guys do. So, I mean, like, is, it, is that why you is that how you would explain why it is that the NRA is given prominence over, for example, the gun owners of America? Uh, I mean, I don't know that they're given prominence per se, like their membership is much larger and they have uh, they have more um, uh, kind of flex about uh, ability to be the swing in more areas. Um, they also kind of like the because they are like fairly moderate when you get down to it um they spend uh more of their time in kind of the uh uh if you look at their legislative impact in trying to like moderate the technical minutia of uh, implementations so it's like yes the nra supported the 1994 assault weapons ban boo however they spent a lot of time and effort uh, getting a sunset provision uh, incorporated into that bill as part of like a very brutal uh, evaluation of exactly what margin they could lose by and how much they could afford to lose by. So, I mean, the other kind of answer is that like Republican voters aren't really the Republican coalition. Uh, the Republican coalition is like your GOP money guys. Uh, the uh, that's the donor class, right? I mean, the GOP voters are just sort of the room meat, and due to increased uh, atomization, uh, a lot of the times they do not have the infrastructure, even if they do comprise like an identifiable uh, interest group. They don't have the infrastructure to organize for their own interests so like small business owners like small business owners yay backbone of american economy etc etc everybody likes them they really have 
very little incentive unless they're just like that small business owner who lives off of, uh, you know, government set asides for small businesses, um, or like minority contracts or whatever. But like Joe Blow running a, a plumbing, uh, business or like a subway franchise or whatever. Um, although the latter guy is definitely a Patel and he's, he's voting D, um, a lot of them, it is their like concrete economic interest to vote Republican or at least stop Democrats from taking power. Do they have the kind of infrastructure that allows them to actually send somebody to D.C. to say, hey, that like $8 trillion or whatever that the Federal Reserve just made available for the big guys to come and buy us out while we get shafted because they fucked up the allocation of Paycheck Protection Act loans and, oh, by the way, made it uneconomical for people to actually work for us because unemployment benefits are higher than their underlying wage. Like, there's nobody that can represent, like, small business owners as a class because they have very divergent interests and a lot of them don't have the uh, the individual free resources um, that are able to pool together on a scale that they would be able to actually get somebody to convey a lot of these things. So they're kind of uh, left between a rock and a hard place where on a local level, yeah, like your local car dealership is able to have significant political influence on a local level. But on a national level, if you look at, you know, the coalition of like, Every body shop in America, they do have like certain definable interests that are concretely affected by national politics, but they don't have the coordinating ability to actually make that clear or to exercise power as either swing votes or swing contributors or to fill positions in administration or to, you know, fight wars or any of the other stuff that are how you exert influence on the government. So they're kind of left on the same page as like, well, they're kind of individual donors and individual voters, but they don't have the outsized uh, influence as somebody who's like full-time job it is to do politics. I'm worthy but no Don't always work according to plan Gotta learn as you go And I found life's a game of inches I'm still playing, gaining digits Making calls If I fail, never blame it on indifference Since when train missions to obese Where every teenage listener's rite of passage Dismant banging, boom bap there and back I remember wagging a visit Imagine me when a chance was given to weave My own stories in a 4A is it Couldn't wake me up with pinches If the launch opened the 
door, then the flock party blew it off the hinges. Fast forward a year and it's my second LP, but I'm Victorian, baby, already coming after three. Don't worry about me, I'm straight, rep my city by the bay, spread love all day, every day. And all I know is that I love our music, I rep my town, we stand too strong, hit it every step down, now they all good. I never change, let them know that it's all good. Same number, same word, and I love our music, I rep my town, we stand too strong, hit it every step down, now they all good. I never change, let them know that it's all good. Same number, same word. I'm paying for with all the chances that the Melbourne scene gave me Represent for them, even if it ain't reciprocated To the kids with a dream, writing rhymes to make their statement This is where hard work and a lot of heart can take it In fact, I barely began With steady hands in my plan Craft mom for the fam and the friends and the fans But they don't need me to tell them They've already planted the flag for hip-hop On burnt copies of American bands I'm in the Bayside sunshine Repping for the Frankston line And that's where I'ma be residing when they call time This culture of kings Kept me honest when I had a dream A ballpoint pen and nothing in my wallet Swore if I got a hold of what I wanted I'd be bringing it home And I'ma wear fingers to bone to keep the promise This is one love for the kids still struggling Melbourne City by none, by nothing and all I know is that I love our music I rap my town, we stand too strong You never step down, now they all good I never change, let them know that it's all good Same number, same word And I love our music, I rap my town we stand too strong, you never step down.